In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You are advised that any view expressed by the host or their guest are not necessarily the views of the owners or management of Toginet Radio, Togi Entertainment, or the Owners Group, Inc. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear the Lord, and he delivers them. We lost an angel this week. Our dear friends from the theatre, Candace and Joseph Jones, lost their 12-year-old daughter, Olivia, to acute lymphoblastic leukemia. This was her third relapse during her short life, and she fought bravely for the last 18 months, finally surrendering on Wednesday afternoon. I pray that her parents are able to support each other in their devastating grief. And I'm gently reminded to bless the Lord for my healthy children every day. Sometimes I don't. I sent an image of purple pansies showing as clear as day the stamp of an angel in their petals that my dear friend Teresa had photographed. On her photograph, she had overprinted these words from Psalm 34. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear the Lord and he delivers them. I've always loved the idea that God sends his angels to protect us. For when he does... Who dares approach to do us harm? Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sociable Homeschooler. I'm your host, Vivian McNinney. I'm going to dedicate today's show to Olivia, a fine example of determination and courage. May her soul rest in peace. This afternoon, I'll reflect on the continuous round of activities that went on at my school, how we didn't have time to think, a dangerous occupation even back then. I'm going to be looking at homeschooling in New Zealand and Canada, And in the second half of the show, I'll be talking to a prestigious tour manager who took famous musicians on the road. He's going to be talking to us about his career. And of course, I'm going to be nattering on about the household and my week. So grab your tea and sit down. We had a visit from another dog this week. He belonged to Maria's Maria, Malia's friend, Margaret, from Blooming Grove. Margaret, she's the one with the acres and the horses, came up for a 24-hour chat with her BFF and bought her little Shih Tzu scooter with her. My zookeeper son instantly renamed him Jean-Paul, much more appropriate for a little French-looking dog, he thought. He answered to anything, especially if I happened to be near the fridge. I kept him a bag of ham, sausage rolls and carrots in the deli drawer just to spoil him and stop him from getting homesick because I know how that feels. This little dog became our responsibility as Malia and her friend were gone most of the time. So we let him outside and he disappeared right under the fence. The holes that Buddy couldn't get through, Jean-Paul didn't even have to duck for. Before we knew it, he was off through the back 40 to the place on the other side where Great Danes and Bull Mastiffs live behind their fences, luckily. They loved him. Such a tasty-looking morsel on the other side. He came home without much persuasion, but we had to block up the holes. There were quite a few. Evidently, we missed one because in the night, when he got the girls up to go outside, 
off he went again. And the funniest thing, according to Malia, was that Margaret tried going under the fence after him. Blonde, blonde, blonde. On Sunday morning, we went to Lindale, where Togginet lives, to visit my mother-in-law. It's always great to be at another person's house because there is nothing to do except talk. My oldest daughter, Paris, the teacher, came with us, and my oldest son, Ian, the filmmaker, and his girlfriend, Sarah, arrived later for dinner. We had a grand old time listening to big band tunes on the record player. When I told Ian he could actually turn the record over and play the other side, the look on his face was priceless. I must admit, I'd sort of forgotten that property until then. How soon we've come immersed in new technology. And on Monday, because I was in Togginet land and had booked me a space at the studios, I went in to do my guest spot on Sandy Fowler's show, Heartfelt Holidays, live and not at home. Wow. The studios are amazing, very swish and professional, with lots of space to expand. John and Jill own Togginet, and John was wearing some amazing footwear, leather Crocs. I ask you, how chic can you get? He and Jill admitted to dressing comfortably since they never have walk-in business, so next time you're in Lindell, rattle their chains and pop in and say hi. The leather Crocs are a sight to behold. Back to me for a bit, Sandy introduced me as an expert, which was superb, and encouraged me to talk about the new kind of Christmas we'd experienced as a family last year. So, to listen to the podcast, go to togginet.com and find Sandy's show. You'll hear me, the expert, rattling on for about 30 minutes. This is for you, Tina. Monday, February the 21st, Heartfelt Holidays podcast. Go there. And thanks, Eric, for not making too many faces at me as I sat opposite you in the studio, expounding. Thanks, Jill, for reassuring me when I admitted to being nervous. All of you take radio so much in your stride, but it still gets the butterflies fluttering in my tummy. Thanks also, Kerry and Jill, for talking to my blue-eyed cowboy and his mother while I appeared, thus keeping them out of the studio or him out of the studio. I can picture all of you at your workspaces now, and I feel so much more part of the team. Well, it's time for my book excerpt. In this one, I remember how every waking moment had to be filled with an activity at my school. I hesitate to say at my boarding school, because in America, this has negative connotations. In England, it's frightfully upper crust. The nuns thought that thinking was a dangerous pastime, so this is not new. We were not left alone for a moment. To be. Even back in those days. To the onlooker, sightseer or tourist, my school, popularly called Thornton by the girls because they didn't want to be mistaken for nuns, was a beautiful manor house, included by William the Conqueror in his doomsday book of 1066. He sent faithful servants out into his newly acquired land to take inventory of all he had stolen from the English and recorded it painstakingly, item for item, acre for acre, in the massive tome. My six-year attendance there left the embers of a raging war within my heart against structured activities. I've already talked about schedules. Now I'm going to look at all the activities we participated in from dawn to dusk that made up these timetables, as we called them. My fire against structured activities was kindled almost as soon as I arrived at the school. There was a massive real gong in the main entrance hall, which when struck echoed loudly through the manor house where we all dwelt. 
We could hear it in the far reaches of newly constructed classrooms adjacent to and away from the main building, in the tower of the original house, in the dormitories of the main gallery that wrapped around the central grand hall, in the attic rooms and library, the drawing room and kitchens. A distant boom could even be heard in the laundry which was attached to the back of the house forming the second quad wall in the cobbled courtyard where foot-weary horses of the Norman conquest must have stomped and whinnied as they were unbridled and led to the stables for the night. There was no gong-free zone at Thornton. I soon came to recognise its coded strikes. Three times a day it was sounded for meals, three staccato raps repeated twice. Three times a day for prayers, two strikes repeated twice. A single strike meant a class was ending and a new one was beginning. The end of the day was denoted with a resounding clang of five evenly spaced gongs. Then it was covered and silenced for the night, like a bird in a cage. Released from the ear-shattering irritant, we became subjected to a silent but nevertheless more demanding timekeeper, the lights. After evening prayers in the chapel, we'd process in the seasonal gathering gloom to our dormitories where the electric lights would be blaring. Here we would be expected to perform our evening ablutions and finish any homework before a nun came along and plunged us into nighttime darkness and silence until the morning. In the summer, the enduring natural light won the battle of the switch flipping and during exam weeks, we'd gather by the windows and study for as long as we could. In the mornings, before the gong was awakened into service again, we were subject to the fervent ringing of a handbell by nuns on duty. They'd pace up and down the dormitory corridor, summoning us to dawn mass, or with a later bell to breakfast. Not a moment went by in the first years of my school when I wasn't pressed into doing something. In between lessons or when school was finished, we went for walks in crocodiles, walking units of three abreast. We practised our musical instruments after tea. We did our homework together before supper. We bathed according to timetables. We all washed our hair on the same day according to dormitory. We wrote letters to family and friends on Saturday mornings. We went to tuck shop according to class. We polished our indoor and outdoor shoes on Saturday afternoons. We said matins, noonday and compline in the chapel. My favourite prayer was said in the evening. It summed up my day. For everything there is a time. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to chair down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Ecclesiastes 3 verses 1 through 8. Somewhere during these six years, I ceased wearing a watch a habit that prevails to this day. From the early morning bell to the flipping of a light switch, I was accounted for and gainfully employed. There was no such thing as free time until we got into the sixth form. It's a wonder none of us ran away or simply refused to obey all the silly signals that controlled our lives. I suppose we had nowhere else to go. 
Well, I've got a little bit of time, so I will tell you about my guest who's going to be on the next segment of my show. His, um, he's a tour manager, and he toured the world with uh, famous musicians, ensuring that they were in the right place on stage at the right time. Not an easy task sometimes. Um, he personally managed Andy Gibb and an artist and sculptor whom he always refers to as quite famous. And he's going to talk to us today about how he turned his dream into a reality with hard work and determination. Um, so, if you want to find out who it is, you need to come back after this break. And so go get yourself a cup of tea and um, return after these messages. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Season Me is on Toginet, a delightful, thoughtful, serious, and not-so-serious call-in show with Cecil Murphy and Twyla Belk. Tuesday nights at 8, 7 central on toginet.com. You know Cease is the veteran author from 90 Minutes in Heaven, Gifted Hands, When a Man You Loved Was Abused, and many other books, as well as a mentor for writers. And Twyla Belk is an effervescent force known as the Gotta Tell Somebody Gal. She's also a writer and motivational speaker who's always bragging on God. For more on Cecil Murphy, go to his website, Cecil Murphy, that's P-H-E-Y dot com. And for Twyla, GottaTellSomebody.com. The show, Season Me, is a far-reaching, faith-based, shared conversation and call-in show with questions welcome. A chance to get everything out in the open. From questions about writing to surviving sexual abuse to the topics of the day. All from a Christian worldview to help you. Season Me, Cecil Murphy, Twyla Belk. Tuesday evenings at 8, 7 central on Toginet.com. Now, this Saturday morning, we're going to count them down one more time from number 40 all the way to number one with the official classic hits countdown, the American Rock and Roll Countdown. We'll count down the biggest hits of the 70s with interviews and artist information, news, weather, sports, you name it, we'll have it this Saturday morning, 9 o'clock Eastern, right here on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. All right, so my guest this week is Larry McNinney. Larry worked with the Stigwood Corporation and toured with such greats as Eric Clapton, the Bee Gees, Three Dog Night, Firehouse, and Ozzy Osbourne. And in case you didn't notice, Larry shares my last name, or rather I share his, which means he's the father of our four children, and together we live the homeschool experience. Good afternoon, Larry. Welcome to my show. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> long, time no, long time no see. Ah. All right, well, let me see. 
first off, before we talk about your career, why don't you tell us something about yourself, like who you are and what you do and uh, your family life? Because um, some of our listeners might be first time listeners and they won't know who the heck you are. Well, I'm uh, your husband, very happily, and was born and raised here in Dallas which is where we currently live and one of my first goals was to see the world and I've been very fortunate in that I've got to travel around the world many many times stay in the best hotels travel in the fanciest private transportation uh, eating at the best restaurants and somebody paid me to do it so I've been very fortunate all around and then fortunate in my married life too so <laughs> okay so um, did you tell us how many children you have i have four children yeah uh two boys and two girls beautiful children that my wonderful wife homeschooled all throughout their schooling and uh they're now almost all of them out in the world which well, is and which is kind of scary <laughs> kind of scary i know i know how you feel um so what were some of the things that you did as a homeschooling dad to support your wife that's me well, I would do things in the evenings and stuff, or in the mornings. I would get up and make breakfast and get the kids going because my wife took over straight away in the mornings. And school usually started about seven thirty. And then when I was off the road, I would go to work and work, and then usually take over in the evenings and do bath time and read books, putting them to sleep, and all of that. So mine was kind of before and after homeschooling. So, but what was your favorite thing? They, the children really loved something that you did that has to do with your business. Well, I used to sing to them a lot, and mm-hmm. I used to do their storybooks in the evenings, and I would play guitar and sing, and sometimes I would kind of get a little crazy and make up the own storyline, my own storyline myself, and uh, that really didn't go with uh, Hop on Pop or any of the Dr. Seuss stories or Amelia Bedelia, so... They always, they never really knew what I was going to say next. And because they couldn't read, it was silly to them and kind of frustrating. Uh, Paris told me last night, she said, because she didn't know if I was really telling the truth or not, because she didn't know how to read. (laughs) Until they got to read the books themselves when they were older. (laughs) Well, and now sometimes they tend to do that. Paris told me that in her daycare where she works, uh, she reads the stories to little kids. And she's so tempted sometimes to read about, to do what I did and say, and there he was. And all of a sudden he died. (laughs) So anyways. Well, that's funny. But I mean, that's just an endearing thing that they will always remember about dad. Well, I hope so. So when you were a child, what did you dream of doing with your life? Well, as I said, I always wanted to go around the world. I always wanted to see what else was out there. And I think I can remember a time when I decided that I didn't want to be a sports figure or play sports and all of that. We were playing football in the front yard of our house. And I got knocked into the holly bushes. And not only did it hurt from getting knocked by another player, but I also, the holly bushes hurt quite a bit too. And I was laying face down in the dirt and I thought, this isn't for me. I need to find something else to do. And a friend of mine had a guitar that he showed me. And it it was shiny and had all sorts of knobs and gadgets all over it. And it was a really cheap guitar that had come from a pawn shop downtown Dallas. And um, I just I just took to that. I thought that was cool. And my parents uh, bought me a guitar for Christmas that year and got me lessons. And I, that's 
kind of took off. I was an aspiring rock star for many years until about the age 22, I decided that it wasn't going to happen for me. And I better try to find some other way to go about seeing the world because I was not going very far. Okay, so obviously you're still you've still got that dream at 21 of going around the world i was going to ask you did your dream change as you got older but obviously it didn't change no i think uh, and and i think maybe that's one of the reasons i don't know i think maybe one of the reasons that i wasn't successful in the music business is that i started so young i mean when i was 13 14 years old we were playing parties and uh for you know our friends and teenagers making money and i did that all through high school and, and junior high and uh, into college and i was trying so hard to make it i was and i got to be friends with pete townsend the who when i was 15 years old and a lot of people and it just i think by the time i was 21 22 when the band broke up it uh i think i had burned myself out on trying to make it as a rock star so, but I still had that desire to see the world and to be in in the entertainment business. And you know, I I guess seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, seeing how happy they looked all the time. I mean, they were just smiles everywhere. And then seeing all the girls screaming, uh, that was quite an attraction right there for me. I knew that, you know. So, uh, so I, you know, I was fortunate. That I thought, well, what did I do? What what was it I did best? And I was the one who always got the the jobs for the band and rented a hotel room if we were out of town or a truck if we needed to travel with extra you know our extra equipment and collected the money and paid everybody and all of that and called the rehearsals together. So um, I kind of looked towards getting into the more of the management the business side of the industry and was very fortunate that I was able to make that a success. Okay, so um, did you go to college in order to be able to learn how to do this, or or what happened? Well, I went to college, but not they didn't teach me how to do this. I I took some music and business courses, but it, you know back then, back when they had the horse and cart days before automobiles, they didn't have schools that taught you how to be tour managers or production managers or how to mix sound and uh, how to do lights. In fact, there were no big sound systems or lighting systems or trucks back when I started. You just had to jump in and learn. And pretty much that's what happened to me. I was working in an office up in Tulsa, Oklahoma for a friend, and he handled the business affairs for a, a well-known bass player that actually had previously in the 60s played with Gary Lewis and the Playboys. That was his early call to fame. And I you know, saw a need there, and I went up, and I paid my own way to work in the office there until about a year and a half later, uh, I got a phone call one day asking me to come down to Dallas to join Eric Clapton's entourage. And actually be their bag boy to start with because the manager didn't actually want to have to lift 60 pieces of luggage every day to move to a different hotel you know so that was my entrance and i just happened to be in the right place at the right time and i think that's you know you have to you have to look for the opportunities then you have to people need to they need to read everything they read or everything they look at how does that apply to me you know if you're going to be a technical engineer or if you're going to be a the airplane pilot, you know, how how does that apply to me? How can I make that apply to what I want to do is what I did, you know. So. Well, um, as you said, that was quite a long time ago. And today the um, emphasis seems to be much more on um, 
you know, education and, um, you know, going to college and, and doing, doing that. And so maybe those opportunities of being in the right place at the right time aren't always quite as um, out there, prevalent or whatever. What do you think about that? Well, they're, they're, they're out there, but the competition now is so mm-hmm. tough. There are so many young people out in the marketplace today that, that pretty much people my age and like me that haven't stayed in the business all along. I actually retired uh, back to Dallas when we started having a family that I, you know, uh, I wanted to be there. I didn't want to be gone from them all the time. But now, you know, I've, I've kind of missed the boat. The boat, you know, I got off at a port and the boat kept going. And left me behind, but there are schools uh, all over the country, all over the world, in fact, that teach you how to be a tour manager and production manager and a lighting designer and all of that. And nowadays, you know, there are people that are doing that, opting out of a normal college to go to the tech courses to get in the entertainment business because they still see it as something very glamorous and all, which it only is, but it's a lot of hard work. It, it only is, you know, from the outside. From the inside, it's just another way of life. It's just a different way of life. Um, Is your job, would you say that your job while you were working um, on the road and touring, would you say it was a steady job? Well, mine wasn't because it was when I worked for Stigwoods, and that was for about three years solid from 76 to Eighty or seventy nine, eighty, and I managed Andy Gibb during that time, and where I worked with Jack Bruce, who was the bass player with Cream and and Eric, and uh, the Bee Gees were in there, and I did their big tour in nineteen seventy nine. And then I went to work for Ozzy. It was kind of uh, Eric didn't work a lot; he worked three months of the year. Bee Gees worked once every ten years. I mean, it was kind of odd; it was sporadic. And every time, you know, I would work for six months and make a nice amount of money to put away, and then I would come home, and it might be two or three or four months before I'd have another job. Mm. But uh, it it wasn't it wasn't continuous, and it was like applying for a new job each time. So each tour that I, uh, I would go out on, you'd have to get to know a bunch of new people, you know. Yeah. And at the end of the tour, that was it was always kind of sad because you would go out on the road with these people and learn a bunch of things and have all the inside jokes and everybody would have to rely on each other. And when the tour was over, you would say goodbye and knowing that some of these people you'll probably never see again in your life. I do have some friends that I, you know, still have to this day. But uh, and then the hard one of the hardest parts was coming back home because the people at home had carried on with their life. And they had no clue what I was talking about or people like me, you know, because we would come home and say something that we thought was funny out on the road. And the people at home would kind of look at you like, well, that's not particularly funny, but it would be hilarious to the other people I'd been living with for the last six months. Wow. And it was, a, it was an odd adjustment. It wasn't very, it wasn't very pleasant, actually. Um, one of the hardest things to adjust to. Yeah. For those of you just joining us, I'm talking to Larry McNenny, who's sharing some inside secrets about the music business and how to be successful around successful people. Larry's also the homeschooling father of four socially adept children. He writes books and treatments, proposals and contracts, and and is an entrepreneurial whiz whose brain never stops working. (laughs) He played guitar for his children, making up silly songs about them, and wound them up royally when it was time for bed. And he's toured with many famous bands, as well as serving as technical director at the Garland Summer Music. So join me after these messages for more conversation with Larry. 
How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on Toginet with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. Everybody In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing? Chronicling her opinions on everything. The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Mom with Jill Hickey. Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. The show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. Well, we're back, and I'm talking to Larry McNenny, tour manager. And um, we were talking about how difficult it was to come home after being out on the road for maybe months at a time. Is that how long you would be gone for months at a time? Well, months at a time for sure. Um, they would there would be times you would do like six weeks on the road and come home for two weeks or two months on the road and maybe come home for two weeks. Everybody, including the artists, wanted to go home every once in a while to make sure that the house was still there. Mm-hmm. There was one period where I worked. Uh, I went straight from being on the road for nine months with Eric Clapton, and I flew the day after the tour ended from Seattle to Dallas to start the BG Staying Alive tour, which went on for another nine months. So that was 18 months solid mm-hmm. on the road with a few breaks in between. But um, I ended up getting walking pneumonia. I mean, it was just, mm. well, probably a lot of it was my own fault, but just, you know, a lot of hard work and, and never enough rest, really. Mm. And so um, the difference between this kind of a job, it sounds really glamorous and fantastic and that kind of stuff, is, um, you know, if you're at home, at least you get to come home and visit with your family every single evening, whereas when you're out on the road, you don't. So there's this big gap when you eventually do come home, um, you know, where there's this disconnect that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, well, I was going to ask you how many jobs you've had, but I, I suppose that would that would translate into maybe how many different bands have you worked with? 
Well, the only only other job I had prior to getting in this business, legitimate job, was I managed a men's clothing store for about three or four months when I was 20 years old, and I I knew that wasn't for me. It really didn't relate to your childhood dream. No, no. I mean, I have all of my itineraries. I mean, tours, I don't know. I mean, it's dozens and dozens. I've been around the world, I, I would I would guess, you know, eight or ten times completely. Um I, I joked at one point I've seen more cities in Germany than I have in America. Yeah. You know. Um but no it was there were long bouts of being gone and there was a lot of money to be made. I'm I'm kind of appalled these days at the amount of money some of my contemporaries are making that are still out there. Mm-hmm. I've got a friend who is a production manager for several well-known artists and he makes about ten thousand dollars a week right and works probably uh, 48 weeks a year you know but you know sometimes you wonder what you have to sacrifice in order to be able to do that you know because you you said you um weaned yourself off the road once the family started to happen because you could see that the tour touring life was not going to go really well with the family life if you wanted the family life to um you know remain stable yeah well no i you're right i yeah. it's the same thing with uh, the music when I wanted an aspiring rock star, mm-hmm. I decided that I was going to come back to Dallas instead of living in Los Angeles after the band broke up because I wanted a better quality of life than quantity. I mean, I probably could have done well staying out there, mm-hmm. but I just there were too many transient people, everybody was you know parentheses in the business mm-hmm. and you know, everybody ran into, and I didn't, you know, that wasn't really the kind of life I wanted to live unless I was going to be in the business as well. Mm-hmm. So I came back here and kind of got a good good foothold on the on the place and, uh, you know, thought thought things through until I came up with a plan. So, mm-hmm. so would be, this be the sort of job that you would um, encourage your children to go into? <laughs> your uh, children or other uh, children, college-bound I, children? <laughs> Not really. Um, although, you know, my son's, although Ian is doing uh, in the film business, that was kind of, I, I made a mistake, I guess, that my parents made. I got, They gave me a guitar. We gave him a video camera for his 12th birthday. And, you know, up until that point, he thought he was going to be an astronaut. Mm-hmm. So uh, he took that and fell in love with it. And now as a filmmaker, luckily, um, our youngest is into theater and dance. Uh, the other two are the only two that were going to have any kind of normal lifestyle or normal type jobs. But no, I mean, I don't know. It, it's it's too competitive out there now. Um, the, the, the technology has made it so wide open. You can still be successful. I imagine there are going to be a lot of people that are still successful out there in all areas of the business, including the artistic side. But they're not going to be as many of the ones that reach the high plateaus that some of these the previous artists made in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Just because of the quantity out there, you know, the, the dollar will only go so far. You can only see so many concerts in a week, you know, until you get another paycheck. And now they're so expensive. Mm. Uh, well, know, so earlier, I- earlier on in our conversation, you talked about, um, you know, sort of, 
looking in newspapers, following up on articles and, um, you know, sort of pushing your way into um, jobs that you thought looked attractive and trying to convince people that they needed you. Mm-hmm. Um, could you expand a little bit more on that? I mean, it's, it, it's not, well, maybe, maybe linked to interview techniques, but really we're not talking about, you know, sort of a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher going in for an interview. I mean, because your business is so different. You've got to show them something else. What What do you have to show them? Well, I think in this business, it used to be, and I, I suspect it is pretty much now, that you had to be really, really good at what you did. If you got a job as a tour manager or even a roadie, a guitar tech or something, and tuning a guitar or setting up a kit of drums, and you didn't do it well, you didn't last very long. The rest of the crew would run you off. Uh, in my career, I only ever had to fire one guy, and that was because he did something illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you, you have to be really good at what you do, and then your name will get around. One of the things I was really good at, even as a young even as a teenager, was I could get in touch with anybody I set my mind to. Uh, if I wanted to get in touch with you know, an artist or meet Pete Townsend, which I did, you know, I, I was able to figure out how to do that. And I still do that to this day. I mean, I'm working on a project now, as you know, and I'm able to get in touch with executives and companies that don't even answer the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's, it's really you've got to be good at what you do in this industry. Um if you get an opportunity to go for an interview, you've got to be able to, you know, look good. Uh, the drugs, drink, and rock and roll and all that era has passed. You know, nobody puts up with that anymore. Um, you know, and it, I, most of, I can't think of any interviews really that I did. You know, I was hired because of my reputation. The only one I ever did that comes to mind was I interviewed with Bette Midler. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up not getting that job because her manager told her that they paid my way out to California. And Bet hit the roof and said, well, why didn't he pay his own way? Mm-hmm. Um, this comes from her lawyer a few weeks later, you know, which, you know, goodness, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But other than that, no, I mean, I think you've got to set your mind to it and go for what you want and try to figure out how to get there. You've got to have dogged determination and not not take no for an answer because mm. you know whether it's with the same company or another company doing something similar you've got to get out there and do it all right so say you're talking to a um, group of young people who are gung-ho to be in the music business because it just sounds perfect they're sort of musicians themselves maybe some of them are classically trained and could go on and and get good degrees with their music and others are just you know just really talented raw talent um what would you advise them to do would you would you head them towards college or would you you know sort of encourage them to be a small local band so that they're a small fish or a big fish in a small pond rather than a small fish in a big pond what what's some advice you might give aspiring music business people well i think you, you they've got to i think they really nowadays probably need something to fall back on but it can be in the same industry i mean it could be if you're a guitar player an aspiring songwriter you can still be really successful, but you also need to have something to make a living at. You can't just kind of hang out and sleep on people's floors for the rest of your life. Because believe me, time flies, and you know, next thing you know, you'll be sixty years old and going, "Where did it all go?" Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think they've got to. Nowadays, I think you've got to have a degree. You've got to get out there. 
or either either from a college or a tech school and you have to be well trained and you know if you're a musician writing songs you've got to get yourself to where there are publishers and people that need songs so nashville mm-hmm. los angeles or new york or london um it's so really is hard it, is Sorry, it age is it age driven i mean do you think some people might say oh gosh but three years at college you know i i might miss the boat is that is that uh, fear? Um, it's only age driven, up until a certain point, up until the mid thirties ish, you know, uh, or so. After that, you know, is a is a is an entertainer yourself. You're probably getting past it. I've got a good friend who is one of the most incredible singers and songwriters that I've ever heard in my life, and he writes some of the most beautiful songs. And he is my age, and unfortunately, he will never make it as a big star, and he should have 30 or 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would have been one of the biggest, but it was he just wasn't in the right place at the right time. So age-driven in that, you know, there is a window there if you want to be the star. If you want to be on the crew, the only window is by your your ability to live on a bus and live with a bunch of other people mm-hmm. and live rough. I mean, it's like camping or living with the circus. You know, there's not a lot of continuity there, particularly if you're with the crew and you live on the bus five out of seven days. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough that we had a hotel every night, although we mm-hmm. traveled by bus and all of that. But uh, I at least got a hotel room every night. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to not change track completely, but... Um what are some of the mistakes you made during your career, do you think? Um, letting my guard down, I think. Mm-hmm. Maybe, uh, you know, just trusting somebody or not not upholding my end of a bargain, not, not a verbal bargain or a contractual bargain, but, you know, um, not not being as much of a leader as I needed to be, you know, just thinking that I can relax and take it easy one night and then find out that, you know, somebody, well, well, one of the, one of the the leader of the band had been, it was in a fist fight downstairs with somebody at the bar and was about to be arrested, you know, and I was in my room, you know, but you couldn't, you can't babysit somebody all the time, you know, you've got to trust them. And the industry changed from when I retired in 84 until I went back in 93 to do some tours everybody had grown up it had become an industry and no more i mean people weren't allowed you didn't show up drunk or hung over and all of that every you know it was it was too big of a business and nowadays even more so uh, well i'm going to have to cut you wow we've come to the end of our time so quickly um Thank you, Larry, so much for talking to us this afternoon. And if you want to see one of the projects that Larry's working on, go to www.roadcases.org. And um, Larry was talking to us and gave us some valuable advice on how to prepare for interviews and how to convince people that they need you. And I'll be back after this short break. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Christian work-at-home moms, here is your own show on Toginet. It's CWAM, Christian work-at-home moms, with Jill Hart and Diana Ennett. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Central on Toginet. 
Um, I'd love to share with you just a little bit about how CWOM can help you, whether you are new to the work at home world and just starting out your search, or whether you've been working at home for a while and are looking to grow your business. Jill Hart is the founder of Christian Work at Home Moms, CWAM.com, and co-author of So You Want to Be a Work at Home Mom. Jill has worked from home from 2000 and started her home-based business to assist other Christians who desire to work from home while maintaining a godly life. And Diana Ennett with virtualwordpublishing.com. I really, truly want to see you succeed, want to share the joy that I have in being home with my kids and being able to build my own business. And she's ready to help you now. Christian Work at Home Moms with Jill Hart and Diana Ennett. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Central on Toginet. Now, this Saturday morning, we're going to count them down one more time from number 40 all the way to number one with the official classic hits countdown, the American Rock and Roll Countdown. We'll count down the biggest hits of the 70s with interviews and artist information, news, weather, sports, you name it, we'll have it this Saturday morning, 9 o'clock Eastern, right here on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Well, I'm back, and I was talking to Larry McNenny, tour manager for Eric Clapton and the Bee Gees, to name but a few, and he was talking about um, his career and encouraging or discouraging you, depending on what kind of lifestyle um, you actually wanted, um, family or single or whatever. Fun job being on the road, but also very difficult and hard work. Um, Right. Well, thanks, Larry. It was my pleasure last week to have Amanda van der Gulik, a native New Zealander, presently homeschooling in Canada, as my guest on my show. And it was refreshing to hear some really positive input about how the governments of both these countries respond to homeschoolers, especially after hearing about the persecution occurring in Western European countries like Germany, Sweden, and even Britain, who looks with caution on her homeschoolers. Amanda's husband is from Holland, and their decision to homeschool their children wasn't received enthusiastically. Apparently, the atmosphere there is not easy either. Her father-in-law actually sat her down once and told her that she'd made the wrong decision to homeschool his grandchildren. Even though it was obvious the children were thriving, they'd picked up enough Dutch in a week to communicate with the family, and he still thought they weren't doing well. Old habits die my heart. Obviously, she paid scant attention to his opinion since they're still homeschooling and loving every moment of it. I went on to the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, who very conservatively say that even though the education laws in both Canada and New Zealand are homeschool friendly, parents should be careful about complying with the law. I can understand HSLDA's reticence to enter full whack into extolling the wonders of this Commonwealth freedom to educate at home. They are they are lawyers and our watchdogs, and they know from first-hand experience that there are always unseen forces at work to throw a spanner in the works and have everything come grinding to a nasty standstill. Not to burst any bubbles here, but let's not get too complacent and forget to thank the Lord for this freedom we enjoy in America every day. Well, from our conversation last week, I gleaned this from Amanda. 
Not only is it completely legal in New Zealand to homeschool, they actually pay families who do quite a good sum of money too, enough to buy the monthly supplies and that ball and chain we're all hankering after. The state recognises that each family who keeps their children at home to educate them affects their bottom line. Positively, these parents actually save them money. How about that? I just paid my ISD taxes and I wish the authorities here would reach the same conclusions. In Canada, homeschoolers are supposed are supported by local schools and even send teachers out to remote areas to offer moral support and encouragement to those who may not be able to take advantage of available government resources because of distance. Now, that's really good. Although the percentage of homeschoolers are about the same as here in America, the topic is not taboo. Mothers and children are not looked at askance, and universities are quite homeschool-friendly. Of course, the main question of concern that comes from people who are not actively involved in homeschooling is the age-old favourite, socialisation. It crops up everywhere. One article I read on a New Zealand blog said that homeschooling kept children away from unwanted socialisation. Parents were free to choose the friends for their children and not just let them run wild amongst would-be bullies and bad influences. I'm not suggesting that all homeschoolers are above bad influences, but for the most part, the folks they come in contact with daily are adults or older, more mature, home-educated children, whom we hope are a little more sheltered than the average child. So although socialisation is the main concern of others looking in, over-socialisation is more of a concern for those of us on the inside looking out. I looked online to see if Amanda had missed anything in this very glowing report she was giving on homeschooling in these two large Commonwealth countries, and here's what I found to back her up. In both countries, compulsory education is from 6 to 16, and homeschooling is legal. In New Zealand, an exemption form from enrolment can be obtained from the Ministry of Education, reviewed by the Secretary of Education, who then decides whether or not the potential homeschooler can homeschool. And... um, They say that they have to be able to teach their children regularly and as well as in a registered school. The Ministry of Education doesn't require parents to explain why they want homeschool. In general, the exemption certificate asks what parents want for their children's future, their overall goal. Um, They want a list of subjects that that are going to be taught, um, as well as where the school is going to be conducted. Yep, they want to know. Bedroom, kitchen, table, field, anywhere and everywhere. Be honest, the support groups warn. They They want transparency, not glib answers, to please the government. One of the questions is on socialisation, of course, and I read a comment that said, do they, the authorities, really think anyone who's planning on locking their child in a basement is going to admit it? Basements are global. If awarded an exemption, which is more than likely because they have a healthy appreciation for the money saved, an allowance, as I mentioned before, is paid $743 for the first child, $632 for the second, $541 for the third, and $372 for each subsequent child. I don't know how they come up with such random, odd amounts. Anyway, the recipient is under no obligation to adhere to the national curriculum, but good old HSLDA, forever watching our backs, cautions the Kiwis to pay close attention to the possibilities of strings becoming attached. In Canada, each province has its own laws, rather like states in America. Um, An evaluation is made by or for the school board on the family requesting exemption from compulsory attendance. Parents have to send a letter of intent to homeschool only if they're withdrawing a child or children from school. Otherwise, they could be marked as simply truant. 
In both countries, institutes of higher education are very welcoming of homeschoolers. So that was some good news for those of us who teach at home. And as I said last week, consider keeping your children out of school as a viable option to public and private schools. The rewards are great if you do, but I warn you, empty nest is painful. Regardless of what your education choices are for your family, remember to pray for those parents who homeschool amid oppression. Well, this week, um, I had an odd emotion after cleaning out the large bedroom closet, uh, which is home to all our clothes and other knickknacks that find their way in there. It took me and hubby two whole days to do the clean-out and the repairs. Some of the hanging rails had far too much weight in them and were pulling out of the walls. And we unloaded six or eight bags of shoes, clothes and stuff to Goodwill, and some of it we tossed. There was a lot of rubbish too. When we were finished, we proudly showed off the closet to all our children, and they were wowed by the largeness of the small room. In fact, when they were babies, I'd put them in there in their bassinet. Now, this is a huge walk-in closet, and it has a window, and it's just like a a little room. And um, they would sleep in there until they slept through the night at about six weeks old, so that they were close to me without being right next to my bed. The children all love my closet without really knowing why. A sensory implant from their infant days, I suspect. The odd emotion that I experienced was one of sadness, shuffled in uninvited. I was sad that I'd finally turfed some belongings that had been with me in my closet for 26 years. And I was sad to think that one day I may accumulate so much stuff all over again. After ridding ourselves of all the excess material garbage, is there an expert out there who can give us a tip on how to stay cleaned out? This applies to our minds too. We get rid of all the baggage, we deal with it in healthy ways, and then unconsciously it piles back on again. Do we need to do regular cleanouts? Well, I thought I did, but obviously not. And I didn't throw enough stuff away. We still accumulated a load. Um, While I was in Lindale, my brother uncharacteristically called me at the beginning of the week and he asked if I'd spoken to mum. I said, yes, but not today. Why? He said, she won't talk to me. She's doing sign language, just can't get any words out. Now, she is having pain in her jaw and I have had x-rays and dental exams done as well as a doctor's visit, but they can find nothing wrong. So we're waiting for a letter of referral to the hospital for a CAT scan. We've been waiting since October. Welcome to the British National Health. I followed up with the medical team last week and they resent the letter. I'd been telling my brother that mum was having problems talking as if she had her face numbed at the dentist. But he ignored me and I reckoned, well, he sees her every day, so I didn't worry. But it turns out he does go in every day, but he goes late in the evening when she's already in bed and she's not talking to anyone. Anyway, after chatting for a while, he finally called back to say that she'd said something to him and that he was going to get the doctor over. And that was four days ago, and I've heard nothing from him since. But I did call Mum the following day, and apart from a coughing fit which caused her to hang up the phone twice, we had a good conversation, best in weeks, actually. And during it, she said, Funny, I don't have any trouble talking to you on the phone, but I can't talk to Vincent. Why not, I asked. I don't know. The words just won't come out. I suggested she talks to him on the phone, but she brushed that off with a comment about not really having anything to say to him. Curious, eh? Well, my friend Sandy of Heartfelt Holidays, gosh, another shout out for her show, tells me to write everything down on a calendar. I've been doing that ever since I got my job here in Dallas and had children. My biggest fear is finding myself having to be in two places at one time. Um, 
But so far, I've averted that calamity, but only because I keep a calendar that is the memory portion of my brain. I make no plans without consulting it. Woe betide me if I try to. So far this year, more and more responsibilities are piling up. I find myself completely overwhelmed and I'm doing everything the experts, including myself, tell me to. I do deep breathing, I work out, I meditate, I practice yoga, I journal, I walk, um, I keep a calendar. I guess I should learn just to say no, but I still find myself adding more and more to my to-do list. And as I said to my friend Teresa, I may write everything I'm doing down, but I don't write all the preparations down. Oh, really, I should, but my calendar isn't big enough for all of that. Am I ready to read a book each day before I commit to something else? You see, I have three days in March mapped out for a job, a real paying job with the Dallas Independent School District. Only on the first day, I have reading group that evening. And on the second day, I have mass because it's Ash Wednesday, not to mention preparations for my show on Friday and having to attend several performances of my daughter's musical in which she dances and sings. And yes, that is the beginning of spring week, spring break. And I decided that uh, while I was talking about my overwhelmedness with myself in the car, nearly missing a green light on a thought, a little sidebar here, I tell my children not to text and drive and I should remind myself not to think and drive. Anyway, I decided that having two calendars was a no-no. Had I mentioned that I'd added another calendar to my life? I honestly do try to keep them both synchronized, but every now and again I've caught myself in a double booking. Red flag flapping wildly in the wind of my brain. Get rid of one of the calendars, I tell myself. Well, I thought I was busy when I had all four children at home. Um, The weather was nice this week, and I watched my Texas cowboy supervise the cutting down of a very large branch branch the other day. I was in our field, so there was no danger of knocking down fences or smashing windows, which happened before, or damaging the roof. My zookeeper was up a ladder, being held by his trustworthy father, and he had an electric saw in his hand. It was a little blunt because the slicing through of the wood wasn't very impressive. I'm always worried that the lumberjack is going to be tempted to reach up and grab the blade to adjust its position. My blue-eyed cubby did that once and cut off the top of her finger, silly boy. But I can sense that magnetic attraction. The limb that my son was cutting off did finally fall with no mishap. Well, it looks as though I am drawing to a close and um, I want to thank my husband once again because he actually listens to my show every week in in his office. And so when I asked him to be on my show and actually talk, he went, ah, and he was a little bit nervous. So I had to, you know, sort of print him up a list of questions that I was going to ask. And I think he did pretty well. He was sitting out there and uh, um, chatting away. And um, it was very interesting because um, the job he had was glamorous, but really like any other job you know it just becomes a normal job but although it's unusual so thank you very much for sharing your ideas and thoughts for that and you can go to www.roadcases.org to find out about his um, project that he's working on and i've managed to rattle on for another whole hour it's time for me to bid you farewell this week 
We're helping our oldest son move this weekend, being his sole moving crew for free and on hand. Then we have dinner club and are sampling the delicious cuisine of sunny Italy. The Olivia funeral is on Sunday afternoon, so think of her and her grieving family. For now, I'll say thanks again to my handsome husband, who is also my guest. He believes in love at first sight, our four children, who are the result of that belief, the hardworking staff at Togginet Radio, and you, my faithful listeners, especially Hannah, Tina, thanks for the fan mail, Tina, and the St. John's. And Ali Laprit, host of This Little Parents Stay Home, is coming up next on Togginet Radio, so don't go away and have a great weekend. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you his kindness and have mercy on you. May the Lord watch over you and give you peace. Do, do, do. Do, do. Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney on Togginet. 